Welcome to the show today. We have a great lineup for you. First out, out of the box is I want to talk about the New World Order and uh, some things that Joe Biden has said recently. And we need to pay attention to this because it really explains a lot about what's going on with the election when we think about the fact that we're not simply looking at Democrats versus Republicans. And I know that's how people slice it, but it's about internationalists versus those who are nationalists and those who have America first agenda. And that really slices up differently. We'll talk about the new world order in just a moment. And then secondly, I do want to talk about what is called Texas Appleseed. And this is something that has not at least by, by me, and I've never heard anybody talk about Texas Appleseed. Is the Texas Appleseed Project, which involves detention, uh, detention, juvenile detention facilities, and uh, the incarceration rates, and uh, they, and it's an Austin-based company that uh, is pushing on school systems and what they want to be done in the school system regarding removing kids from the classroom and so forth. So, we'll talk about the Texas Appleseed Project uh, in just a few moments, and then if we have time. We have a lot more I want to wade into regarding uh, the author J.K. Rowling and Mormonism. Remember, J.K. Rowling had tweeted not long ago regarding Mormonism, and then uh, the L- many of the LDS members have jumped on her. And um, so it's been an interesting struggle there. So we'll talk about all of that. Uh, hopefully we'll get to that last one today. So let's uh, think about, first of all, uh, the New World Order. And before we do that, by the way, I do want to get uh, my apologies to uh, Larry Fink. Larry Fink is the CEO of BlackRock, and I, I called him uh, Flint a couple of times on the show last week, and I, he- I heard it. And uh, at any rate, it's Fink. Uh, he might wish that it was Flint, but uh, anyway, it's Larry Fink. But uh, he probably doesn't care. He's wealthy enough. But at any rate, we talked about BlackRock in, and uh, the corporate world last week. But this week, I do want to talk about that which Joe Biden said in the ice cream shop while he was slurping on ice cream this last week. And here's the comment that he made. I'm not concerned about the strength of the dollar. I'm concerned about the rest of the world. Our economy is as strong as, and then he cursed again. You know, he can't speak without cursing. I, I just, by the way, I want to offer my objections right up front. He can't, he can't even offer an address to the nation of, to our nation without, using the Lord's name in vain and cursing. I just, and I offer my objection, and many people may not agree with me, but I'm going to offer it anyway. Anyway, back to the story, the ice cream shop in Oregon. And he was there campaigning for Tina Kotek, who is running for governor. He went on to say that inflation is worldwide. It's worse off than it is in the United States. So the problem is the lack of economic growth and sound policy in other countries, not so much ours. It's a worldwide inflation, and it's consequential. All right. Think about that for just a moment. He's concerned with, and he said very plainly, he's concerned with the, not, not our economy, but he's concerned with the rest of the world. You know, when Joe Biden speaks off script, which he does frequently, it's about like Kamal Harris, when they speak off script, they really let the cat out of the bag. This is really the telltale sign, the telltale uh, evidence that what's going on in our nation is, and this is why we've reversed direction when Biden took office from former President Trump, because they are internationalists. They are number one internationalists first. They're global citizens first and Americans second. And I think 
That is a treasonous position to take. He's concerned with the rest of the world. So the real dividing line, the real dividing line in politics is not Republicans and Democrats, but the real dividing line is internationalists and nationalists, those who want to put America first. Now, internationalists can include Republicans such as George Bush, both Bushes, George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush. Both of them are internationalists. This is why we never changed direction when the Bushes were in office. We kept on going the same big government international view. That's what was taking place. And so the same thing was going on with Biden. But the only person in, in my lifetime besides Ronald Reagan who took a different approach, who is not internationally minded. And by the way, to say internationally minded is to say that they're interested first and foremost with other nations to siphon off the wealth of the United States and give it to other nations. That's what they're interested in. That's why China is such a giant, a a successful story in the marketplace, because we have built China up. That's the internationalist viewpoint. And the only person that was that way was that was not that way, I should say, was Ronald Reagan. And then, of course, Donald Trump. Donald Trump said very plainly and openly, it's America first. He was not an internationalist. He went to the international uh, groups and international clubs, such as the United Nations, and told them point blank. He says, no, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to fund NATO, which is an arm of the United Nations, and we're not going to be the policemen of the world. That, of course was music in my ears because the internationalists have circumvented the Constitution. We'll talk about that in just a few moments. Furthermore, Biden said in the ice cream shop, well, the economy is strong. That is absolutely ridiculous. You know, round bales for horses and cattle, round bales, that is about a thousand pound round bale. That's something with which I'm familiar. You Several couple just two or three years ago, you could buy them for sixty-five, seventy dollars, clean Bermuda hay round bale. Today, in this area, you're going to pay something like one hundred seventy-five dollars. Someone was telling me the other day in in the Metroplex area that you're going to pay up to six hundred dollars for round bale. The economy is strong. No, the economy is crashing. The economy. We're in a tailspin. That's what's taking place. The economy's strong. No, absolutely not. Then Biden went on to say, well, the other countries are in trouble, too. Well, with Trump, I'm going to say this. If we quit being hooked into the rest of the world, as he couldn't wait to do when he got into office, that's why he canceled the XL pipeline, as well as canceled contracts for drillers to work on American soil. That's why he that's why Biden did that, because he wanted us to be hooked into the international order. World government, and we'll talk about that in a moment, too. He wanted us to be hooked into it, and that was the first thing that he did. And what a, what a shame it is. He was going around to the entire world, Venezuela, Iran, Iraq, all these countries, and begging, begging them for oil, or Arabia, begging them for oil, begging them to increase their production at least into, until we get to the elections coming up, which is early voting, by the way, next week, so... You know what? This is all internationalism. Internationalism says other countries first. They want to be hooked into the rest of the world. They do not want to be independent. They don't want the United States to stand on its own. 
That's exactly what the position is with so many of these internationalists, Republicans and Democrats. And you need to pay attention to that because it's not about Republicans and Democrats only. Now, let's talk for a moment about his March 2022 business roundtable discussion. And at the business roundtable where all the big wigs of the of the big tech world was, were sitting, here's what Biden had to say. Now is the time when things are shifting and there's going to be a new world order out there. There, There's the terminology again. A new world order out there. And we've got to lead it. He's talking about shifting, the shifting of the power structure. New world order. What is this new world order you hear him speak about so frequently? Global government. Global government. That's what it is. They haven't gotten so bold as to quit saying new world order, they keep now they're saying global governance, global governance. You know, it's just like, OK, we've we've got them softened up on this new world order. Now it's global governance as if we are not able to discern the difference between governance and government. The same thing. And that's exactly what the United Nations is all about. Now, fact checkers. After. Biden spoke at the business roundtable. They were falling all over themselves and saying, well, any of you who talk about global government, global governance, that's that's a conspiracy theory, conspiracy theory. You know, it's not even a conspiratorial theory anymore. It's right out in the open. Here's Wall Street Journal from April 25th, 1992. You know, people are tired of the so-called fact checkers telling us that these are conspiracy theories. This is how Biden spoke in 1992, and his article was entitled, How I Learned to Love the New World Order. It was an op-ed, and it was proposed to breathe life into the New World Order. How so? By strengthening the United Nations. That included providing it with a permanent military force. At the time, Biden was supporting President H.W. Bush's repeated call for a New World Order, and as you know, George H.W. continued to call for that. Then Biden's speech in the export import or to the export import bank 2013, he made this comment. The affirmative task that we now have is uh, actually um, creating a new world order because the global order is changing again. Now, this is 2013, mind you. And the institutions and roles that work so well in the post-World War II era for decades, they need to be strengthened. We'll talk about whether that was successful or not in just a few moments. Successful? Boy, I tell you what, we've been involved in war continually, but that's because of this new world order. Then at 2017 at the World Economic Forum, this is Klaus Schwab's organization. Biden's speech used the term new world order so many times to address the global elites. He made seven urgent appeals for a new liberal international order, global order. Why are they talking about? They're talking about a global government. That's what they want. And they're circumventing the United States Constitution to do it. So we've been afraid for years about the federal government overstepping its boundaries and taking over the roles of the states. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we're way past that at this point. They have shifted now to the United Nations, and it's an international global world order. They want an international government is what they want. It's complete with the World Bank, the uh, International Criminal Court, 
You know, you think it's hard to fight City Hall? How hard would it be then to fight Austin, Texas? And how hard would it be to fight Washington, D.C.? But now you're going to have to fight Davos, Switzerland. That's what's going on. All right, when we come back, we'll talk about some of the key players in this global government. I had intended to read to you so many statements of individuals who speak about the new global government, the world government, such as Nelson Rockefeller in 1968, he wanted a new world order, or President Richard Nixon in 1972, who was also a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, which we'll get to in a moment, talks about wanting to build a new world order. Uh, Henry Steele Commager, 1975, talked about a new world order, and on and on and on it goes. Uh, Fidel Castro, George H.W. Bush, Mikhail Gorbachev, the entire, the entire slew of these global elites, they all want a global government. But who are the key players in it? I'm going to bypass some of those statements, but we'll just think about this. Well, number one is the Council on Foreign Relations. What is the CFR? The Council on Foreign Relations, I think it's seated by Richard Haas at this particular point, created in the 1920s by Edward Mandel House. Edward Mandel House was Woodrow Wilson's right-hand man. Mandel House wrote a book. That was called Philip Drew Administrator, in which he said, in Philip Drew Administrator, that he wanted to have Marxism in America or socialism as dreamed of by Karl Marx. That's what he was wanting. That's what he, that was his goal. He wanted to establish the League of Nations. And the League of Nations was his prototype of the United Nations. But there were too many people in Congress that recognized that it was circumventing the sovereignty of the United States and circumventing the Constitution, and so they rejected it. And Edwin Mandel House went to the drawing board, and he came up with two organizations. One was called the Council on Foreign Relations, which was designed to promote world government with the elites in America and then in England, the Royal Institute of International Affairs, RIIA. So the CFR created in the 1920s, and you need to look at, see, who is a member of the CFR? Who is a Council on Foreign Relations member? There are many Republicans that are on the CFR board. As a matter of fact, Mac Thornberry, who was a representative from this area, people wonder, why don't we ever see, or wait, when he was a representative, why didn't we ever see him out front? fighting this globalism and this this liberal takeover of America. Why don't we ever see that? Because he was a CFR member, as far as I know, he still is, Council on Foreign Relations, which wants a global government. That's the very goal. So this is 1974. It's Richard Gardner who writes in the, their official organ, the mouthpiece of the CFR, is called Foreign Affairs. And in 1974, Richard Gardner, CFR member, wrote this. And Listen carefully. to He lays it just as cleanly as he can. In short, the house of world order will have to be built from the bottom up rather than the top down. It would look like a great booming, buzzing confusion, to use William James's famous description of reality, but an end run around national sovereignty, eroding it piece by piece, will accomplish much more than the old-fashioned frontal assault. End run around national sovereignty, building it piece by piece. That's how they're trying to do this. And COVID was one of those things that they utilized a tool by which they wanted to end run around the national sovereignty. That's exactly what they're doing. 
Henry Kissinger, for example, talks about, and Henry Kissinger, incidentally, is just one of those globalists that has always been an internationalist, internationalist first, America second, if it's if America at all, really. Henry Kissinger, who had Secretary of State with Richard Nixon and been in the government for so many years, regarding the COVID strategy of 2020, listen to what Kissinger had to say. Leaders are dealing with the crisis on a largely national basis, but the Oh, but the virus society dissolving effects do not recognize borders. While the assault on human health will hopefully be temporary, the political and economic upheaval it has unleashed could last for generations. Do you get that? Political and economic upheaval is going to continue to go on. No country, he continues, not even the United States can in a purely national effort overcome the virus. Addressing the necessities of the moment must ultimately be coupled with a global collaborative vision and program. If we cannot do both in tandem, we will face the worst of each. So what are the key words there? Coupling global collaborative vision and program, a global program. That's what he's always wanted. That's what he's pushed for. That's what Henry Kissinger's pushed for. That's what George H.W. Bush has pushed for. That's what George Bush pushed for. And that is what all of the Democrats, the Obamas of the world, Bill Clintons of the world, and now, of course, Joe Biden also. So in the upcoming election, you need to pay attention who are internationalists as opposed to those who want America first. Now, I said we're going to talk about the players that are pushing global government. The number one was Council on Foreign Relations. Number two is the World Economic Forum, headed by Klaus Schwab, established in 1971. It creates, really, and has created a fifth column in the United States among the elites in business, finance, politics, media, academia, think tanks, tax-exempt foundations. What is their objective? They tell you very plainly, global governance. What is the difference between global government and global governance? Well, just a matter of time before you are softened up enough to be able to take it. The goal is to sweep away the checks and balances and establish worldwide tyranny. You note, for example, the World Health Organization. Who is in the control of the World Health Organization? For crying out loud, it's China. That's what's going on. And we've learned that from the COVID virus. In the Schwab book called The Great Reset, the would-be world rulers have dropped their masks and they outlined their totalitarian goals. The agenda, they said, is to reset. Reset the entire structure of the entire planet economically, socially, biologically, morally, and spiritually. How are they going to do that? Piecemeal by the World Trade Organization. That is, the United States is not going to be in control of its own trade. The World Health Organization World Organization going to oversee the United States, the International Criminal Court, International Monetary Fund, UNICEF, the European Union, NATO. The plan, according to Schwab, is to confer more and more regulatory control along with executive, legislative, legislative, judicial, police, military powers to regional and global elites until national sovereignty will be a relic of the past. That's a quote. 
What about our constitutional democracy, our constitutional republic, I should say? You know, by the way, that was a slip of the tongue. We, all we hear anymore is about our democracy, our democracy, our democracy. I want to show you how far we have wandered from the Constitution. Our founding fathers warned us of a democracy. They told us a democracy is right next to totalitarian socialism. Democracy. Democracies have been the spectacles of turbulence and turmoil, says James Madison. And they refused to even use the word democracy. They called it a constitutional republic. You haven't even heard that kind of talk anymore. Even the candidates on the Republican side of the ticket are talking about democracy. What's happened to our democracy? Well, you know what? We've left the Constitution, haven't we? Joe Biden, in a World Economic Forum speech, here he is with Klaus Schwab. He regurgitated the, the stale globalist boilerplate propaganda. He said, after World War II, we drew a line under centuries of conflict, and we built institutions and alliances to advance our shared security. Let me just note this. Our shared security. What has happened? The real story is, number one, we have been constantly at war ever since World War II. We're still technically at war with North Korea. We have not one year been out of war with any country. That is by design. The difference now is not that there's world peace. The difference now is that America is drawn into every conflict worldwide and acts as a global cop. Number three, we have won no wars whatsoever. Did we win Korea? No, we're still at war with Korea. Did we win Vietnam? We lost Vietnam. We ran out of Iraq. And what happened in Afghanistan? Iran was our friends until Jimmy Carter came into office. And now they are our enemies. This is my design, ladies and gentlemen. These are not mistakes that are being made. We need to quit listening to these internationalists. No, it's not success. And in all of this, United States money, the taxpayer money, is being siphoned off billions and billions of dollars through the World Bank and International Monetary Fund and sent overseas to other nations. That's what's taking place, and you and I are funding it. That's internationalism. We'll be back in a moment. Now, this next story involves Texas Appleseed, and we'll talk about how that is really a, an organization. It's a, an Austin-based public interest justice center changing laws and regulations and policies that deal with juvenile justice. And it basically is applying socialism to the classroom and to juvenile justice. We'll talk about that in a moment. But right now, I do want, before we go, go there, I want you to note that we are making some changes with American Liberty, with Bill Lockwood. We're actually uh, going on different platforms. One of the platforms we have is Spotify, but you will not find us under American Liberty. You will find us under Patriotic Pulpit. Patriotic Pulpit is really how we're rebranding the show, and that's what you'll find on Spotify. It will also be, and it is also a podcast, not only on Spotify, and you need to get the app for that. But it is also Amazon Music. It will be in an app there. So Patriotic Pulpit on Spotify, Amazon Music, and also Apple Podcast. So three different platforms is where the show is going to be as a podcast. So we're changing it up. We're moving in different directions. We're opening it up just a little bit. And uh, the reason for that, of, of course, is uh, number one, uh, 
Um, YouTube kind of got crossways with this uh, because of the government censorship that's going on. And, of course, we've talked about that in the last several weeks. We don't need to go back through that again. But YouTube and Facebook and all those companies and Twitter, they're all about censorship in America. And they are quasi-government organizations. That's what's going on. So we've gone with a new name, rebranding it to Patriotic Pulpit, and it's on Spotify, Amazon Music, and Apple Podcasts, and you can find those things there. As well as, I write a lot of articles that deal with some of the materials that I have on the show, and you can find those on the News Talk 1290 website. News Talk 1290 website, they have a lot of articles dealing with materials uh, and events in this particular area, but I write articles that deal with a little bit wider issues, and so you can find my articles there. And the, the matter of fact, this next story you can find, I have an article that's coming up, will be posted shortly on this, and that is Texas Appleseed. Now, that's the name of an organization, and it applies socialism to the classroom. And how does that, how is that working? Okay, so Texas Appleseed, it bills itself as an Austin-based public interest justice center to change what they call unjust laws and policies involving juvenile justice. Now, as you might know, I have been teaching in the school system for a long time, and for many years I've taught in the juvenile justice system, that is in juvenile detention, where in this particular particular area we have a, a great director in Kirk Wolf who directs it. And so some of these stories regarding juvenile justice are, uh, really catch my attention. So Texas Appleseed, specifically this organization works to dismantle unjust laws is what they say that unduly, now listen to this, unduly burden historically undeserved Texans. Now, what do they mean by historically undeserved Texans? They mean minority children are undeservedly punished within the school system at a higher rate than white children. That's basically the bottom line from a letter that they sent to the Dallas ISD last year. Texas Appleseed wrote this, according to the data from the Texas Education Agency, there were 6,800 black students and 5,900 Latinx students were suspended out of school from DISD during the 18-19 school year as compared to only 363 whites. All right, that is 6,800 black students, 5,900 Latinx students, and 363 white students. Now, you know, of course, that the assumption is going to be that this is all because of structural racism. Well, let's talk about that for just a moment. Black students, it is pointed out, represent 22.6% of the DISD student population, and yet they accounted for 46% of out-of-school suspensions. So the population, 22%, but 46% of out-of-school suspensions. So this disparity, that's enough for people in a lot of driver's seats in the educational system and in the government to claim that there is Systemic racism against minorities. It's all because white people want to incarcerate the minorities. And to enhance this charge, Texas Appleseed, this is exactly where they are, they freely and frequently invoke the specter of George Floyd's death at the hands of the police. And they talk about George Floyd murdered by the police and get, try to get everybody riled up. And you can see this in their letters on their website. Now let's back up for a moment. I want to talk about JDAI. Texas Appleseed reflects the JDAI program. JDAI is Juvenile Detention Alternative Initiative. 
That was championed by the Annie E. Casey Foundation. Annie E. Casey. Look it up. Annie E. Casey Foundation. As a matter of fact, the Annie E. Casey Foundation is found on Texas Appleseed materials. So they're linked at the hip. That is Texas Appleseed and Annie E. Casey. Like other Marxist-oriented agitators, the founder of this was Bart Lubau. Bart Lubau is a former member of the SDS. Well, what is the SDS? I told that to someone the other day. What are you talking about? The SDS is Students for Democratic Society, is a front group for Marxism and communist organization in the 1960s. In other words, Bart Lubau is a communist. He's never changed his stripes, and instead of, just like the others what we know about, just like other communists that we know have gone into education, Bart Lubau went into this juvenile justice program. So he now, in the JDAI program, which is the alternative initiative that they don't want kids incarcerated, basically, so he says they will require states, this is a quote, to work to reduce the disproportionate representation of minority juveniles in secured facilities. What's the problem? The problem is there are too many minorities being punished because of white racism. What's the solution? Revamp the detention and incarceration procedures as well as school suspensions along social justice lines. Social justice. That is, of course, the sugar stick today. What is social justice? Well, it has little to do with real justice. It really focuses upon outcomes. Social justice is a misnomer. It does not refer to justice at all. It refers to outcomes. Social justice advocates cry continually, for example, about the unequal distribution of properties, unequal distribution of money, unequal distribution of college degrees, and even now, unequal distribution of jail sentences. So school discipline... School discipline should be meted out by racial quotas. That's where they're going with this. Now, the late Walter Williams, what a great columnist. He wrote regarding social justice better than anyone that I've read can put it. Outcomes of human relationships are often seen as criteria for the presence or absence of justice or fairness. Outcomes, that is, what is the outcome? Outcomes frequently used as barometers of justice and fairness are race and sex statistics on income, unemployment, income distribution in general, occupational distribution, wealth ownership, other measures of socioeconomic status. For example, you saw this perhaps this week, the National Hockey League, predominantly white, now has a social justice office in which they want to fix it and have minorities represented here. Say, we don't, we don't want freedom. We don't want people to choose what they want to do. They're not going to do that to the NBA, by the way, that is predominantly black. They're not going to do that there. But they're going to come to the National Hockey League, and the Hockey League themselves are shooting themselves in the foot with it because they say, well, we need, we need to change it all up here because they are not interested in freedom and what people's personal choices may be. They're interested in the outcome. How many whites, how many blacks do you have, period? End of story. We don't even need a question any more than that. And that's what they're all about. Well, <clears throat> what they're all ignoring <clears throat> and what they refuse to pay attention to is any underlying reason for differences among people of different races. Social justice simply assumes that different outcomes among people is the result of crass prejudices, 
favoritism or white racism. And that is exactly the unspoken assumption of Texas Appleseed. And I resent it. What social justice and Texas Appleseed warriors refuse to consider is that differences in behavior among peoples, races, and subcultures is the result of diverse habits, personal choices, cultural preferences, and moral values that are honored by various groups in America. For example, out-of-wedlock birth rates for different racial and ethnic groups in 2008 was just over 40%. The breakdown of that statistic shows that among white, non-Hispanic women, out-of-wedlock birth, out birth rate, that is white, white women, was 28.6%. Among Hispanics, out-of-wedlock birth rates, 52%. Among blacks, the figure jumps to a startling 72.3%. That is, three out of four black children are born in fatherless homes. That's what it means. Now, is that difference? Are those differences among the races because of racism? Is it white racism? No, it's cultural preferences and personal choices, ladies and gentlemen. Moral values are honored less, and I hate to say it, in the black community than they are than moral values in other communities. That's what's happening. Same thing with abortion. In 2005, the abortion rate for blacks in the U.S. is almost five times that of white women. Similar disparities can be found in almost every measurable statistic. You cannot argue that it's because of white racism. No, it's evident that minority cultures, and perhaps fostered by the government, the welfare system, fostering immoral lifestyles to an alarming degree. That's what's happening. That's what we see on television. That's what we see in the big cities. That's what we have in the cities in which we have minority cultures. Unfortunately, that's, that's the fact. That's what's going on. But no one wants to take Appleseed, Texas Appleseed task on it. They say, oh, okay, we have, uh, we have more blacks and Mexicans than whites that are being punished in out-of-school suspensions. There must be racism. No. No, not at all. What you have is personal choices, cultural preferences, and moral values that are either honored or dishonored by different cultures. That's what's actually taking place. Ethical standards are not being upheld in different communities in our country. That brings me to the school-to-prison pipeline. I tire of hearing people say, well, the school to, the, that is juvenile detention is causing a school-to-prison pipeline. The underlying assumption is that the schools themselves, by their prejudices against minorities, are helping to manufacture tomorrow's criminals. That is absolutely, completely unfounded. Listen to this letter from the, to the Dallas ISD from Texas Appleseed. Quote, through the use of exclusionary discipline and school policing, thousands of young Texans are pushed into contact with the criminal legal system each academic year, from conduct that occurs in their schools. Now, what are they saying? That is, young Texans, they're talking about minorities, are put in contact with the criminal legal system each year by the schools. The schools are at fault here for putting them in contact with juvenile justice. What's the message of Texas Appleseed? Quit punishing kids, especially minority students. It's the contact with the criminal legal system that's the cause of misbehavior. Ladies and gentlemen, that is a crock. 
Reality is far different. Our schools are becoming war zones, even at the elementary level across the country, not merely from outside influences either, not merely because people walk in with guns. Children themselves are becoming violent, completely disrespectful of adult authority, disdainful of private property, disdainful of private liberty of other people. Illicit sex and out-of-wedlock birth have become normal. Sexual assault on school property is now an issue. Drugs on all, of all kinds are now commonplace in the halls of learning. Gang activity dominates some schoolhouses. Teachers are being assaulted. Bedlam reigns in the schoolhouse in many places. And teachers are fleeing classrooms just as quickly as they can get out. And the majority of it stems from minority populations where it is common for a child to grow up without a loving discipline of a father in the home or direction. No, Texas Appleseed, it's not school to prison pipeline. It's fatherless homes to prison pipeline. Children are coming into the school system with an unprincipled conduct that's already going on. And most frequently, the removal of an unruly student from the classroom or from the school itself is the only alternative if you want to have any kind of classroom in which a teacher can actually do the teaching. We'll be back in a moment. A couple of weeks ago, I introduced a story regarding J.K. Rowling, who is the British author of the Harry Potter books, and the woke church of diversity and the golden plates of Joseph Smith. And the, the point simply was that J.K. Rowling, in, in, a, in speaking about transgenderism on a Twitter feed, pointed out that transgenderism is in their imagination. That is, there's not really biological transgenderism. She says she supports transgender persons, but does not believe a person's sex can be changed since it's a biological fact. And with that, of course, I agree. Transgenderism is in the imagination. Biology is clear. Well, transgenders became very angry. Many of them said, you know what? We've liked your books, but we're not going to read them anymore. And blah, blah, blah. So then she's pointed out that transgenderism, this is J.K. Rowling now, is an imagination and she likened it to Joseph Smith, who supposedly found golden plates from which was translated the, the, the Book of Mormon. And she said no one else was allowed to look at it. And implying, of course, that the golden plates did not actually exist. Well, Joseph Smith, of course, the founder of Mormonism, published the Book of Mormon in Palmyra, New York, March 1830. Well, the Twitter world has erupted as many Mormons now have come forward to defend Joseph Smith the Desiree News out of, out of Utah published an article to set the historical record straight. Rowling followed up with some of her tweets with this one. She said, I'm now being told that lots of people saw the golden plates. I'm genuinely fascinated how many people. She had later looked it up. She said there are 11 people claimed to have seen the plates and so forth. All right. That's the backstory. Not that Rowling needs any help, but Desiree News and the critics of J.K. Rowling have come out in force against her, and I want to say a few things about it. The three original witnesses, so-called, to the golden plates from which Joseph Smith supposedly translated the Book of Mormon out of what he called Reformed Egyptian were Oliver Cowdery, David Whitmer, and Martin Harris. This is interesting. Desiree News, pro-Mormon publication out of Utah, talked about these three witnesses. These three witnesses were, according to their own accounts, writes Desiree News, shown the Book of Mormon plates by an angel. Now, what they do not talk about, and it's very easy to find the truth of this, Joseph Smith's family had a long history of digging for money, buried treasure, 
practicing witching with a hazel rod, which Smith claimed was his gift from God, that he'd be able to find buried treasure. He used also a peep stone, a, a pretty stone that he would put in his hat, supposedly, and find hidden treasure. He would bury his face in his hat, lick the peep stone, and he would find treasure. The witch hazel sticks were said to keep off evil spirits, so they'd place them around. His daddy would place them around places where they would start digging. Now, affidavits signed by his acquaintances, neighbors, and co-workers in New York testify at length to this, and I have copies of many of these in my library. Some of these witnesses included, uh, well, there are many of the names here, but I'm interested in this. I wonder why these witnesses are not, are completely, I should say, discarded by LDS defenders. You know, they want to defend the witnesses. What about these witnesses that said, hey, here's what was going on. Now think about David Whitmer for a moment. David Whitmer, one of the three, said this. Smith translated the discovered plates in the following fashion. Joseph Smith, now this is a quote from Whitmer, put the seer stone into his hat, put his face in the hat, drawing it closely around his face to exclude the light, and in darkness the spiritual light would shine. A piece of something resembling parchment would appear, and on that appeared the writing. One character at a time would appear, and under it was the interpretation in English. Brother Joseph would read off the English to Oliver Cowdery, who was the principal scribe. All right. The obvious question here is, if these characters were interpreted for Smith upon a seer stone, how would that make him a translator? He's not a translator. That's not translation. He's simply reading off the letters. That's not translating. That's the first misdirection. Oliver Cowdery, who was the principal scribe for Joseph Smith, later disavowed the Mormon church. He joined the Methodist church in a signed statement in 1839. Cowdery published a lengthy statement entitled, Defense and Rehearsal of My Grounds for Separating Myself from the Latter-day Saints. And he says in it he was plainly deceived, and he says he accuses Smith of blasphemy since Smith practiced what he would, that he, or he actually said that he would tarry on earth till Christ came in glory. Not only that, but Cowdery states plainly that during the translation process, he did not see the plates at all. And he did seriously wonder, this is his word, wonder whether the prophet and I were men in our sober senses. Interesting that Desiree News left that out. Martin Harris supposedly saw the plates, but he told John Gilbert that he saw the plates only with spiritual eyes. So he didn't see them at all. As a matter of fact, his wife was named Lucy, and Lucy said that he told Harris, this is Harris, Martin Harris speaking to his wife, Lucy said, Joseph could see anything uh, in his hat with a stone, anything he wished. And if she would just leave him alone, they would be able to make money out of it. That was the primary object. So J.K. Rowling is correct. At least this primary witness is not a witness at all, but it had a spiritual vision. How about David Whitmer? Whitmer, the third principal witness in a public address, referred to as seeing the golden plates as the vision of angels as recorded in the forepart of the Book of Mormon. Whitmer, like Cowdery, later separated from the LDS Church in 1838. Now, here's the question, and I, I won't go through all the quotes that they have regarding it. These men separated from the LDS Church. They said that it was all wrong. They had been misguided, misled, and yet they're put forward as principal witnesses from the Book of Mormon. Regarding these, there are other witnesses that the Desiree News mentions. Consider this fact. This is a fact to consider. Smith is called the author in the testimony of what are called eight witnesses in the first edition of the Book of Mormon. The title page and the preface of the first edition also called him the author. However, in later editions, the LDS Church changed the testimony of the eight witnesses 
to read translator, not author, translator. So why would they change the testimony of the witnesses, so-called? It is all a fabrication. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a reason why LDS defenders are all online. No deep dive can be made in Twitter battles or article writing or even just on a radio show here. That's just a small sampling of it, but it is J.K. Rowling, interestingly enough, who has pulled back the curtain and see really what's going on behind the LDS claims. 